Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Our exploration of the weekly Torah portion still finds us in the book of Genesis. The portion we want to discuss this morning is entitled Me Kates, begins on Genesis 41.1 and runs a, a rather lengthy portion through Genesis 44, chapter 17. It is a portion that includes many stories that are well known to both members of the Jewish community and those who are not members of the Jewish community who've read the Old Testament. But let me give you a synopsis, a rather lengthy synopsis, in as much as we want to uh, ensure that both the stories that are well known and those that are less well known are uh, clearly understood before we enter into some conversation about interpretation. We find Joseph this week in jail. He interprets correctly the dream of Pharaoh's jail chief butler and baker, and the butler returns to his job but does not keep his promise to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. Two years later, The Pharaoh had a dream, the well-known dream in which he stood by the river deep in thought. Out of the river there came seven fat cows, then seven thin cows came out of the river and ate up the fat cows, a dream that's certainly well-known to readers of Torah. The Pharaoh then has a second dream. There were seven healthy ears of corn on one stalk, followed by seven thin ears of corn. The thin ears swallowed up seven healthy and full ears. In the morning after the dreams, the Pharaoh's spirit was troubled, the text tells us, and he called the wise men in the land, but none could interpret the dreams. Then the butler says to Pharaoh, I know a man named Joseph who can interpret the dreams, and Joseph was immediately sent for. He had remained in prison these past two years. The Pharaoh says to Joseph, I hear you interpret dreams. And Joseph says, it is not me. May God provide an answer that will give the Pharaoh peace. Notice this is the first time that Joseph attributes his uh, interpretation skills to Adonai. Pharaoh then tells Joseph his dreams And Joseph offers the following interpretation. Pharaoh's dream is really only one dream about what God is going to do. God has announced to Pharaoh that the seven fat cows are seven good years and the seven fat ears of corn are similarly seven good years. But the seven thin cows and the seven ears of corn predict that there will be seven years of famine. God is telling you, Pharaoh, what God is about to do, associating the uh, results of famine to the Hebrew God. The fact that the dream was repeated twice is because God is hastening to bring this about. So let the Pharaoh seek out, according to the text, it says, a wise and judicious man and set him to oversee the land of Egypt during these years. Let there be a tax of one-fifth each year during the seven years of plenty. 
let them hold back the food of these good years and under Pharaoh's hand, store up food um, for the bad years. This was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh turns to Joseph and says the following, since God has let you know all of this, there is no one as judicious and wise as you. You shall be the overseer, and only my word from the throne will be greater than yours. Pharaoh takes off his ring, places it on Joseph's hand, and proclaims that Egypt's bound down to Joseph. He changes Joseph's name to Egyptian name, Tzaphenat Paneh, and gave him the daughter of a priest for a wife. Joseph was 30 years old. The text continues to tell us that Joseph went throughout Egypt during the years of plenty, storing grains in the cities. Two sons were born during this time to Joseph and his wife Asinath, and Joseph named his first son Manasseh, for God has made all my trouble and all my father's house into creditors for me. The second son he named Ephraim, for God has caused me to blossom in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty came to an end as predicted and famine entered the land. When the people began to complain to Pharaoh about the famine, Joseph opened the storehouses and began to sell the grain. All over Egypt, hungry people came to Joseph to buy food. The story now shifts from what is happening in Egypt to what is happening in Canaan. Jacob, living in Canaan, sent all of his sons except the youngest son to buy food in Jacob. Jacob was afraid that an accident might befall his youngest sons. When Joseph saw that his brothers had come to buy grain, he made himself a stranger, the text said, and they did not recognize him. They had not seen him since they had sold him into slavery. Joseph remembered his childhood dreams of his brothers bowing down to him and said to them, you are spies. No, the brother replied, we are 12 brothers of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father and the other is gone, alluding, of course, to Joseph. I have said you are spies, therefore you shall be tested. One of you shall stay here and the rest of you go fetch your younger brother, the text tells us. They said to each other, and I quote again from the text, distress has come to us before us of what we did to our brother Joseph. Reuben says, didn't I tell you not to sin against that child, referring to Joseph, but you would not listen. Behold, his blood is therefore now avenged. The narrative of the text continues to suggest that Joseph was listening to his brothers because he understood their language, but the brothers did not know he understood their language, and Joseph turned away from them and wept. Joseph came back into the room and took Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Then he filled the rest of the brothers' vessels with grains and put their money back into their sacks along with provisions for the journey. Along their travels, a brother noticed the provisions and the money. They were frightened. And the text says, what is this that God has done to us? 
When their brothers reached their father's home, they told him of their visit. They told him that they must bring Benjamin back to Egypt in order to prove that they are not spies and redeem Simeon from captivity. The text continues. Joseph is gone, retorts Jacob, and Simeon too. Now you want to take Benjamin? Are you to make me childless? Remember, this is uh, three of his 13 children. Reuben then says, you can kill my two sons if I not bring him home to you. Put him into my hands and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob refused to let Benjamin go. The famine is severe in the land and Jacob needed his sons to go out and get grain from Egypt. They would not go without Benjamin. Finally, Jacob agreed to let Benjamin go. Why was that? We will discuss that later. He had his sons bring gifts for the Egyptian overseer and insisted that they return the money from their packs. When Joseph saw his brothers coming with Benjamin, he had his servants prepare a feast. The brothers were scared, but immediately told Joseph about finding the money and sought to return it. Joseph dismissed their fear, quoting again from the text, Peace be with you, God, and the God of your fathers has placed a hidden treasure in your pack. Your money for the grain has already come to me. Then Joseph released Simeon. Later, the brothers came to the feast and presented their gifts. Joseph asked of their father, but when he saw his brother Benjamin, he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Feeling overwhelmed with emotion, Joseph again absents himself to weep. He returned later and ordered the feast to begin. Afterwards, Joseph made sure the packs of his brothers were full, and again their money was returned. But this time a silver goblet was put in Benjamin's bag. That morning after the brothers had traveled a short distance, Joseph sent his servant to them, and he said, Why have you repaid good with evil? Who took the silver goblet of my master Joseph? The brothers were shocked and said that they did no such thing. If such a thing was done with whomever you find this goblet, he shall die and the rest of us shall be your slaves, say the brother. No, the servant responded, whoever has the goblet shall be my servant and the rest of you shall go free. The other's overseer found the goblet in Benjamin's pack. The brothers tore their clothing as if in mourning. They returned to Joseph pleading to stay as slaves with their younger brother. But the parashah concludes with Joseph saying this, it would be a profanation to do that. Only the man who had the goblet shall remain my slave. The rest of you must go home to your father. Emotion, pathos, and some interesting questions. In particular, two issues emerge from this week's parasha. One is theological, and one is sociological. I've already hinted at the first one. What is it that convinces Jacob to let Benjamin go? In this week's portion, 
we are confronted with the notion of an unpardonable sin. As you have already heard, we are deep into the story of Joseph. As you may remember now, famine has struck Canaan. As you heard, Jacob sends his 10 remaining sons, except for Benjamin, to Egypt where food rations are available. Jacob, sons return to him. Jacob, who believes that Joseph's of dead, and now hears that Simeon has been taken prisoner, is understandably reluctant to risk the loss of his most beloved son, the youngest, Benjamin. Reuben, the oldest son, desperately tries to convince him to let Benjamin to return to Egypt with him and his brothers. This is Genesis 42, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, you may kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Now, to our modern ears, this may seem a tad harsh. But in biblical terms, offering up one's child as a pledge of faith or security is not unheard of. We only have to remember back to Genesis 22 when Abraham is willing to offer up Isaac as a sign of faith. Or in the book of Judges, Jephthah kills his only daughter after pledging to sacrifice, quoting from Judges 2, verses 30, uh, 31, whoever comes out of the door to my house to meet me on my safe return, I will sacrifice. All of this may have served as a polemic against child sacrifice in the context of this Hebrew scripture, but there is no mistaking the powerful force of such a pledge. To his credit, Jacob dismisses Reuben's argument out of hand. Genesis 42, 38. My son Benjamin must not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If he meet disaster on the journey you are taking, you will send my white head down to Shaol in grief. Other than his seeming deep affection for Benjamin, we do not know why Jacob rejects Reuben's guarantee. Perhaps he concluded that having lost one son already and facing the possibility of the loss of a second son, not to mention the danger of losing a third son held hostage, Simeon, would be scant comfort if Reuben had to redeem his pledge and sacrifice two of Jacob's grandsons. Jacob might have been the most flawed of the patriarchs, which in many ways makes him the most interesting, but his devotion to his family permeates the Genesis narrative. The narrative continues and takes a surprising turn. Reuben's younger brother, Judah, tries a different tact entirely to convince Jacob. Some of you will remember that Judah, um, as with all the sons, becomes the names of the 12 Hebrew tribes, and that the land of Judah, the land of the tribe of Judah, becomes the quintessential land of the Israelites through the Roman period. So Judah wants to 
uh, convince his father to let Benjamin go. If he fails in his mission to return Benjamin safely to his father, Judah tells his father that he will not offer to sacrifice anyone or anything. Instead, he tells Jacob, and we find this in Genesis 43, 9, I myself will be surety for me. You may hold me responsible if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. I shall stand guilty before you forever. In other words, Judah is willing to acknowledge that if he fails to safeguard Benjamin, his sin for failing to do so will never be pardoned. And though the text doesn't tell us why, immediately after offering this, Jacob accepts the guarantee. So the question for us is how do we understand the intent behind Judah's words, I shall stand guilty before you forever? The 19th century Italian rabbi and scholar, Elijah Benamose, offers the following explanation in his Torah commentary. The figure of speech contains a valuable lesson teaching us something not otherwise explicitly alluded to in the Torah. There is no punishment outside of the sin. Sin, says the commentator, itself is its own punishment in the divine scheme of judgment and serves the purpose of reward and punishment. It appears that the 19th century commentator is telling us that Judaism is a religion that holds the promise of forgiveness. That is the theme of the book of Jonah and the meaning of the holy days. We can seek forgiveness from God and our fellow human beings, and in doing so, our burden will be lifted. But in the nature of things, expiation is incomplete. There are some misdeeds, some angry words, some failures to take a stand that are never forgiven, Because, as Judah suggests, we cannot forgive ourselves. The sin is its own punishment. In the words of Tim O'Brien, there are the things that we carry. While many would argue that carrying around these unpardonable sins throughout our lives is unhealthy, perhaps they are not looking at it from the correct perspective. To be sure, we should generally forgive ourselves just as we should be forgiving of others. But knowing that there are certain misdeeds and failures, a limited number of acts and omissions that we will carry as a burden throughout our lives, regardless of whether God or others forgives us, creates a powerful incentive to avoid them if it is all possible. Knowing that we will stand guilty forever in our own eyes, compels us to act with compassion when we are tempted to remain bystanders, to vigilantly watch our deeds so as not to humiliate others, and to risk our own safety to protect our neighbors. As much as we wish otherwise, some things we do in life cannot be called back. That knowledge often helps us to live with greater urgency, with greater sensitivity, and greater compassion. And it is that thought that perhaps motivates Judah 
to offer an eternal sin upon his soul if he does not bring Benjamin back. There can be no greater guarantee. And so one is left with the thought that Judah, the son and the tribe, which will be a home to the land of the Israelite people, that will give the name to the Israelite people Jews and will be the homeland for the Jewish people, is really suggesting that knowing that you will carry a sin eternally is enough of an inhibitor to make one think of one's behaviors, knowing that forgiveness is not always possible. So that's one interesting aspect of the Torah portion. Why does Jacob suddenly respond to Judah's offer when he does not respond to the offer of the oldest son, Reuben. Now, I want to shift gears because this week's Parashami Kates is read on the Shabbat of Hanukkah. And so the Shabbat of Hanukkah, which seemingly has nothing to do with our parasha, seems in effect to be an interesting lesson to have learned from this week's parasha. Joseph, the outsider, becomes the essential insider. Joseph, the most important figure among the first generation of the children of Israel, struggles with a version of the dilemma of how to be an outsider and also an insider. Of all the dramatic moments in the gripping story of his reconciliation with his brothers who once portrayed him, None is more poignant, I would suggest, that when Pharaoh tells Joseph that he will have absolute power limited only by the Pharaoh himself, the astute ruler has taken the measure of Joseph and realized immediately that this shrewd and perceptive Israelite was perfectly suited to the nasty work of gathering up all the grain of Egypt during the seven years of plenty and selling it back to them during the seven years of famine. He immediately gives Joseph two gifts that can be read as heart-wrenching example of the price that power will pay. Joseph will now have an Egyptian name, Tzafenat Panea, the sustainer of life, and an Egyptian wife, Asinat, the daughter of a priest, Potipharah. The story that follows reads differently because of those moves by the king to forcibly integrate Joseph into society and culture. Joseph himself testifies to the pain of his situation as the highest outsider in the land. In verses 50 and 52 of chapter 41, Joseph says, when two sons are born to him by Asinat, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, Joseph called the firstborn Manasseh because God has made me forget completely my hardship and the house of my father. And Joseph called the second one Ephraim because God has made me fertile in the land of my affliction. We will soon learn that he has not forgotten the pain suffered in his father's house. We will soon learn that he will always remember his brothers and his father. 
So consider the ironing. The survival of the children of Israel is secured by this child of Israel, the second name of Jacob, who married to the daughter of a Gentile priest, brings his family to Egypt where he and they loyally serve Pharaoh. The survival of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob in a later generation, will be secured by another Israelite, the one from the tribe of Levi, who also married to the daughter of a Gentile priest who will lead a rebellion that liberates his people from Pharaoh's service and slavery. Interestingly enough, the word for slavery and service is the same in Hebrew. Had Joseph and Moses not been at home in Pharaoh's court, wise in the ways of ministers and kings, skillful at magic arts beyond the capacity of Pharaoh's musicians, in the case of Joseph, dream interpretation, and in the case of Moses, working of miracles, and gifted with the right word at the right time and inside knowledge of Egyptian society and culture, and had they not, despite all of this, retained a strong sense of divine mission— and purpose, they would have not been able to perform the redemptive acts assigned to them. We might say, in contemporary terms, that a certain measure of assimilation was required for their success, as was a measure of resistance to assimilation. Contemporary Joes know from experience that the balance is difficult to calibrate officially. And correctly, there have always been more. They have all. There has always been more true of the Jews who have served Gentile kings and courts over the centuries, and by doing so, attempted to serve their people and their God. From the poet and general Shmuel Hanagid at the Spanish court to Henry Kissinger at the Nixon White House, to the many humble tax collectors in Polish domains and populated by Ukrainian peasants. The Joseph story, from a sociological point of view, has been repeated time and time again. On one hand, Joseph offers us an interesting analysis of a theological perspective. And at the same time, he offers us, through his story, an interesting analysis of a sociological uh, perspective. In the book, Jewish History and Jewish Destiny, Gerson Cohn writes, a frank appraisal of the periods in which Judaism flourished will indicate that not only did a certain amount of assimilation and acculturation not impede Jewish continuity, but then in a profound sense, this assimilation and acculturation was stimulus to original thinking and expression, a source of renewed vitality. The lesson of the Joseph story, or of countless episodes in the long history of Jewish encounter with Gentile people, which alludes to Hanukkah, is that if Jews assimilate completely to those ways, we lose our own way, and Jewish continuity is lost with it. But if we don't wish to ghettoize ourselves or allow Judaism to become fossilized, we will need to assimilate at least to some extent. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. For those who are observing Hanukkah, I wish you a happy Hanukkah. 
You may hear a rebroadcast of this week's show on iTunes as a podcast or as a podcast on the chri.ca website. If you wish to send an email to that website, please send it to jff at chri.ca, and we'll try and answer your email questions. Shalom, and have a good day. Behold.